Welcome to the Air Force Doctrine Podcast. My name is Nicholas Sudwood. I am the Branch Chief of Air Force Doctrine Outreach at the LeMay Center. This is the inaugural episode of our new series. In this series, we interview scholars and practitioners of historic Air Force operations to help guide the development and application of Air Force Doctrine. In this episode, our panel explores the application of Air Force Doctrine during the operation to withdraw troops and key personnel from Afghanistan in August of 2020. Operation Allied Refugees, abbreviated to OAR, was a United States military operation to airlift certain at-risk Afghan civilians, particularly interpreters, U.S. Embassy employees, and other prospective special immigrant visa applicants from Afghanistan during the final days of 2001 to 2021 war in Afghanistan. During this time, U.S. personnel also helped NATO and regional allies in the respective evacuation efforts from Hamid Khazari International Airport in the country's capital of Kabul. Often referred to as the Kapul Airlift, the evacuation from Hamad Khazari Airport was one of the biggest airlifts in history. Over 124,000 people were evacuated from Afghanistan in 18 days, ending the longest war in American history. These 18 long days in August 2021 represent a small but important span of time in the narrative of the 20-year Afghanistan war and are the focus of today's panel. Our first member is retired Colonel Dale Spike Shoup. Colonel Shoup serves as the Director of Air Force Lessons Learned Program at the LeMay Center. Prior to his time at the LeMay Center, he served as a Management Analyst for Headquarters U.S. Air Force A-9 Office. During his 27 years in uniform, Colonel Shoup commanded at the flight, squadron, and group level and accumulated more than 1,600 hours in the F-4 and F-111 fighter aircraft. Spike, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here and thank you for having me. Joining him is Lieutenant Colonel Maverick Ditch Bagley. Lieutenant Colonel Bagley serves as the Deputy Director of Doctrine Development at the LeMay Center. During his career, he has flown more than 1,700 hours of combat and combat support in the C-130, MQ-1, and MQ-9 in various combat operations. Following the retrograde operation in August of 2020, Lieutenant Colonel Bagley aided the Air Force Lessons Learned Collection, participating in interviews with senior Air Force and DOD leaders involved. Ditch, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. Our final guest is Major Joey Brewer. Major Brewer serves as the Chief of Wing Plans and Programs at Joint Base Charleston, South Carolina. Over his career, Major Brewer has flown over 2,000 hours in the C-17 as an instructor pilot, served as the Deputy Director of Operations at the 618th Air Operations Center, commonly known as TACC. As a recent graduate of the Air Force's School of Advanced Air and Space Studies, Major Brewer's award-winning thesis on the Kabul airlift captured the first draft of history on this Herculean effort. The stories of the heroic actions of the people involved in the Kabul airlift will be available in Joey's forthcoming book in August of 2023 titled Kabul Airlift, The Chaotic End to America's Longest War. Joey, thanks for being here. I appreciate the opportunity, Nick. As our panel members have reflected on the operation, a number of lessons learned and observations have been drawn. After action reports gathered through the Lessons Learned program have noted increased friction due to underdefined command relationships and a degraded ability to communicate and trade data, ultimately preventing the establishment of a common operating picture. Similarly, Major Brewer's independent work describes the airlift as lacking a cohesive strategic plan, resulting in a withdrawal that represented a collection of tactical plans masquerading as a strategy. Yet despite these shortcomings, both the after-action reports and the independent work of Major Brewer show that the successes of the Kabul airlift highlighted deep professionalism, skill, and dedication of U.S. contingency response forces and air mobility personnel. Well, gentlemen, let's get right into it. 
It seems there's a lot of discussion regarding the command and control structure. Where did this friction exist and what can airmen learn from this experience? Spike, we'll start with you. Yeah, thank you. Let's try to pull that out. Let me start with a, uh, a direct quote from the, uh, from the Lessons Learned report. Operation Allies Refuge Command and Control and Synchronization was compartmentalized along geographic combatant commander boundaries. So to talk through some of that, folks not familiar with how uh, the planning for, uh, for everything in the military occurs, uh, planning is pretty much constant. Uh, there were constant discussions about uh, force levels to be left in Afghanistan, constant discussions about uh, whether or not you're going to take everybody out of Afghanistan. And uh, so there were plans that existed. There were plans that uh, could have been executed. And we'll talk through how a, a lot of the lower level, tactical level plans actually were executed. Uh, but what happened at the very beginning was the lack of an order being issued that explained who was the supported combatant commander for this effort and who the supporting commanders were. So obviously there was direction that the Department of Defense would support the Department of State, but who within the Department of Defense had lead for this operation? Uh, no specification that it would be the CENTCOM commander who is responsible for that part of the world. Uh, no delegation that it would be the transcom commander who had the preponderance of airlift capability and the ability to command and control that airlift capability. Who was the primary, who was in command for the Department of Defense? Without that clear knowledge, uh, you will see that ripple of lack of communications, unclear um, unclear information passed back and forth, uh, multiple commanders in locations thinking that they had the resources and authorities to do things that other commanders thought they had the resources and authorities to do. Um, it leads to confusion, friction, all the things you don't wanna have in this kind of, uh, in this kind of an event. I hope that kind of sets the stage. Absolutely. And so uh, generally we'll see at the start of an operation like this is, is, is a written order that kind of defines these supported and uh, supporting uh, relationships uh, as dictated, you know, right out of uh, AFTP 330. And what we're saying is, is that wasn't it clear and that had ripple th effects. Is, it, is that uh, pretty close? For example, uh, CENTCOM's in the theater. It is their responsibility in that theater. And if, uh, if order would have been written saying um, CENTCOM is the supported commander uh, for uh, getting these folks out of there, uh, then TRANSCOM AMC would have fallen into a supporting role and all the command and control would have been established and directed by the CENTCOM staff. So formats, flows, everything, how you're gonna share information. Uh, Look, still would have been a tough slog, given that uh, there wasn't a lot of prep time for the decision to we're going to take everybody out. Uh, and from from our interviews, um, most of the people uh, forward thought there would be a small footprint left, uh, and that you would not you would not take on this mission. That may have been part of the problem as well, right? 
not thinking uh, that this was actually going to happen. So when it does happen, there's there is a rush to get things done. And please don't misunderstand me. With 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 my years of experience, not speaking for the Air Force, um, but I would tell you, uh, it would have worked just as well had an order been written putting Transcom as the supported uh, command for getting everything out of there. The, that's that's who did the bulk of the work, uh, getting folks out because they had the uh, they had the aircraft and the ability to command and control those aircraft uh, with some friction at the point of attack. But there's there's always going to be that. Uh, when you cross combatant commander boundaries, uh, and when functional combatant commands, which is uh, which is what Transcom is, um, when they cross into geographic combatant commander boundaries, uh, there there can be uh, uh, friction, uh, not not horrible friction, uh, but the way that the different commands do things, it's all a little different based on where they are in the world and who their routine. Uh, work is done with who the allies are in that particular part of the world uh, and how they do things. So uh, all of that can cause some uh, some bumps in the road. Uh, Joey, you did a lot of independent research uh, through some interviews. Uh, did you come to some similar conclusions? Yeah, as, uh, as Spike lays out, there was a lot of confusion that was created. Um, through looking at it across the, the force, uh, I think you have to really take into consideration the other entities that are involved in this as well. Uh, this was a non-combatant evacuation operation. Uh, as Spike alluded to, uh, JP3-68 uh, outlines those, those roles and responsibilities. The Department of State really carries the bulk of that. Uh, most of the time, non-combatant evacuation operations take place over a much longer period of time. And we believed that we had that opportunity in that time to continue this out. Um, the Taliban and the Afghanistan government had a decision, uh, had a role in this, and, uh, and our timeline got uh, reduced significantly from a grand strategy level. We didn't give ourselves a big timeline to begin with. So giving an order, having an order that outlined the supported versus supporting command would have been would have been really great to have that to be start off with, and it would have reduced some of the friction that existed uh, across the multiple combatant commands that were involved. But it, it doesn't. It's not a uh, it's not an end all solution because of all the entities that were were also critical to this operation. Um, Sitcom played a, a major role. This was happening in their backyard for the past twenty years. Sitcom has asked for and received what they needed to prosecute a war and to take care of our national uh, interests and what uh, and the support of the Afghanistan government. As it changed so suddenly, we were looking across four combatant commands now. Uh, as, the, as the Taliban went into Kabul and the government fell and became a non-combatant evacuation, the Marines are outlined in JP3-68 as the primary uh, non-combatant evacuation force, because they can, they're trained and certified, which is the key word in the document, to operate in hostile, contested environments. But if you look at that, we probably didn't give enough planning ahead of time to see if that's the actual best resource in a non-combatant evacuation for Afghanistan. The geography plays such a huge role 
that the Marines are not able to use their organic airlift assets or some of their other uh, short-range security assets to cover the distance that you needed to get out, to safely get out of Afghanistan. So although they were the, they were doctrinally the right source, um, the Afghanistan layout and context probably didn't fit what they were best at doing. We didn't realize that until it was kind of late in the game. Uh, they didn't have the exact resources uh, and the capability to do such a big, massive movements like that. And we found that out and we worked through it uh, over time. But even di directing CENTCOM or TRANSCOM as the uh, supported commander would have been helpful, like I said. But UCOM played such a major role on the release valves uh, for the evacuees. Uh, NORCOM had even larger role on the end, end um, processing of refugees. But within that, the Department of Homeland Security uh, has a tremendous uh, on the vetting and uh, entry into protection of the United States, the homeland, as well as some of our Department of State uh, brethren that were just so under, they were under task, we were not prepared and, and postured to be able to facilitate something like that. So those orders, uh, if Transcom was the supported commander, they still need everything that CENTCOM offers, just as CENTCOM needed everything that Transcom offered. But with this operation coming together so quickly and spanning such a vast space and so many commands, uh, those seams that we have within our structuring uh, really came to light and that friction uh, was felt throughout the operation. And as you get down lower to the tactical levels, um, they were living that. And they have the, the time that they were spending on the ground in the heat, uh, taking care of Afghan people and Afghan refugees in the back of their planes and the struggles they had getting airplanes to be able to park them uh, for crew rest, those were all the repercussions of that friction that we saw. Um, so the, the supported versus supporting command is really valuable as we look forward across uh, the levels, the places that we will be operating and the situations we can find ourselves in. Uh, but we just have to realize the context of the Afghanistan, uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal and the uh, Kabul airlift to really get a, a good understanding of an, the clear necessity for clear command relationships um, that will help us be effective in operations as we go forward. Thank you, Joey. That, what we're seeing there is there's a good application of, uh, of doctrine can help, but you also need to be able to think outside of doctrine. Uh, Ditch, I'll kind of throw this to you as the, the deputy director uh, in the doctrine development. Uh, I've, I've been told that doctrine is the, the box that we encourage airmen to think outside of. And so as Joey has talked about here, we need to follow doctrine, but we also need to look at doctrine uh, as a starting point and perhaps grow beyond that uh, based on the application. Is that what you're seeing as you apply doctrine uh, to this lesson learned? Yeah, I, I think there's, uh, um, like, I, I agree with you. It, it's the, the box that we're supposed to think outside of. But but we have to understand that doctrine uh, is, one, for uh, upfront, it's official advice, right? But it's it's these time-tested truths, these, uh, you know, the way that we, we go about the, the doctrine business of, of developing it. Uh, you know, Spike and his team uh, with Lessons Learned, they play a huge role because they go out, they... Uh, they collect on these uh, exercises or on like this, this operation. We look at it very uh, in, in a very detailed way uh, to see 
you know, hey, this is what happened, what worked, what didn't work, what do we need to do differently in the future? And those things that we learn, they get distilled into doctrine. Uh, so like Spike said, so that, you know, the next time something like this comes up, we're not starting uh, from from zero. Like we already have a plan of action. We already know what what should work and what won't work. What And those uh, those things should be uh, put into our O plans and, and into uh, in operations. So there absolutely was, did, did seem to be a uh, perception throughout this, and I've seen it in other uh, venues as well, where when we're in a, a situation that's time critical, uh, that, you know, we just need to do it now, right? That, uh, and people have this view of doctrine as, well, that's too slow. We can't, you know, we don't have time for that. You know, say like that, that was... Uh, Possibly even something that people were thinking about. Why was why didn't we take the time to draft a, a, an establishing directive? Why didn't we take the time to put that on paper to establish those command relationships? And if anybody says, "Oh, we don't have to have the time uh, for that," I would argue uh, that's absolutely the opposite. You 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 don't have you can't afford not to. You know the the time that it's going to take away from your operation uh, by not doing that, uh, caused by the, the confusion and the friction and the lack of clear lanes of authority and control, and it's critical. Uh, you know, it's probably more critical when, when you don't have the, or when you think you don't have the time than, than when you think you do. It, it, you know, doing things the right way is, is most important in situations like this to do things the right way because it matters uh, a lot. So Ditch, all the wonderful things you brought up, there's really great examples that I found in the, in the research and as of walking through this, uh, of that trying to go fast and avoid doctrine and avoid some of these established processes in the, uh, in the essence of speed, uh, where it came back to bite us, um, as us as an as entire uh, Department of the Defense. Um, in the beginning, when the 82nd Airborne had to deploy from Pope Airfield, from Fort Bragg, uh, out of Charleston Air Force Base. Uh, we were moving quickly to get all of our assets out to Afghanistan to respond to this breaking situation. A lot of times uh, across the joint force, sometimes we struggle with uh, understanding all the doctrine because uh, there's a lot out there, but a lot of times logistic doctrine uh, and how we do our processes in logistics world uh, becomes secondary. Uh, which hurts the overall process. So as the Army came down, they, they hurried down to Charleston to launch uh, and respond to Afghanistan. One of the first things they were doing, uh, they didn't have the paperwork and some of the requirements to, to allow their vehicles and some of their equipment to travel safely. Uh, because at the end of the day, if a plane takes off and it crashes because the weight, the weight in the center of gravity are incorrect, that's not success. Uh, so it doesn't matter how fast you were going. So we decided, uh, or the, the team decided at that time here at Charleston, uh, with the Army kind of pushing hard, to skip some of the in-transit visibility systems that we have uh, available across Transcom and across our uh, joint logistics enterprise. Uh, so things like when the truck comes in, it has a serial number, and you put that serial number into our tracking systems, so now when that truck is on that specific plane moving across the world, 
we know where that truck or that vehicle or person is. We know what plane they're in. We know what location they're going to. When we decide, when they decided to forego some of those, uh, some of those processes and some of the agreements that we have, we create a situation where we were sending planes in of personnel before their their big ammo and big vehicles that allowed them to uh, to get distances and, and have a bigger presence. They came behind them rather than in front of them. Uh, so it created a real friction point across uh, across the space, across that operation because of not fo- like thinking we had to go too fast and not following some of the doctrine and processes that, that existed to help us understand where things were and where things were going. Uh, so there was a lot of things coming, a lot of people and equipment that, that happened to get to Afghanistan and Kabul before uh, before there was scheduled for their other one. Uh, so we had a lot of, of loss of situational awareness uh, across the joint force and across that operation because of that, like Ditch, as you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, that, that came up. Um, that was a big topic whenever we uh, interviewed the folks out at TACC, the issues with the, the load plans and whatnot. I do think it's important to note with that that it's a it's a little unprecedented that the 82nd had to drive down to Charleston. Um, you know, kudos to them for for making it happen, even though they 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 could have done it better for sure. But uh, you know, the that was driven by issues uh, there at Pope because typically you, you send the planes to them, not them to the planes. So, um, but uh, but yeah, not not having the load plans right. Uh, you know, those for for those that aren't aware. Those load plans are put together well in advance, so this wasn't something that they had to do very quickly um, uh, or make up on the fly. Uh, we loading the 82nd onto C-17s is something that's rehearsed and and planned out. Uh, so, um, but I, I don't know that we rehearse drive them driving them down to Charleston to to do the same thing. So. A uh, little, little non-standard uh, hiccup thrown into the operation there. I'm reminded of the uh, Sun Tzu adage that uh, the line between order and disorder lies in logistics. Uh, it's great discussions. Uh, for our next point, uh, as I look at AFDP 330 and JP 330, they both discuss the importance of a shared air picture. Uh, how important is this in an operation like uh, Kabul Airlift, and were there significant lessons to be learned, both positive and negative, uh, from this sort of sharing information and the uh, the common air picture or lack thereof? Uh, Ditch, I'll throw this one to you first. Yeah, I mean, the, the so a common air picture, a common operating picture, you know, the baseline there is commanders need battle space awareness uh, to be able to make decisions to, to some degree, we, you know, like TACC, um, kudos to them. I mean, they, their, their systems uh, were up and running and working 100%. Um, and just like they always do, they knew exactly where their aircraft were, where they were headed, what was going on with them. Um, so, but then uh, the ability for others uh, involved in the process to, um, to see that, uh, it would be conjecture for me to kind of say, you know, would that have helped or or, or not? Um, I know the the lack of awareness certainly generated a lot more work for TACC uh, of just having to take time away from their main job uh, to simply inform uh, those at uh, levels above them, uh, specifically the the joint staff that that needed the information because others outside of DOD needed the information. So. 
Yeah, let me jump in here real quick. Uh, Joe, I've spoken with you separately. I know you did quite a bit of uh, research on, on the information sharing piece, specifically between uh, TACC and the joint staff. Do you have anything to add here? I, from my research, the joint staff fully disagreed with us on, or disagreed with TACC that they knew where any of their airplanes were. So there's a divide based on the lack of knowledge and lack of understanding of operations to the point where uh, – some folks I interviewed on the joint staff in the joint meetings at the highest levels, uh, there was a lack of trust in the transcom and mobility enterprise because they expected a level of detail in the where are my airplanes, what is on what airplane, um, that that transcom and, T and TACC just it wasn't as much of a priority to them. But then the context of it is the president, our commander-in-chief, this operation was about the number of people being brought out of Afghanistan. That was what that was the metric they were using. That was what was getting briefed, and that's what we were all pushing to. Uh, some of the biggest things where the airmen on the ground were making it happen tactically, they were building Google Excel spreadsheets. They were using their T-Mobile cell phone plans to coordinate across all levels of the government. Um, the Google spreadsheets. They were putting in people as they were putting them on the jets, and they were saying, you have to count the people on your jets for the third time, and they'd put the number on the spreadsheet. And folks across, the, across all walks of the government at the highest levels would look at that spreadsheet. Uh, so that's not the right way to do things, but that's how they evolved into doing things. As you pass those numbers of people, from a transcom's perspective, yes, 370 people, cool. Let's move them. From, and so we're okay with that number. From a joint staff perspective, when the plane lands and they have 364 people rather than 370 people, they say, we're those extra six people. We can't trust you. Your numbers aren't correct. And so there was both of them are true. The, from the joint staff, from the senior level leader, and from the transcom and the TACC letter, uh, leader level. Both of those things are true. That's okay to have, yes, it's 370. We'll deal with it later. We got the space at, the, at IUD. We will deal with it later. Let's get these planes off and move the operation. Uh, versus what they're looking for in that common operating procedure or picture saying, hey, we need to know exactly how many people. Because five people difference per plane, and we start running into the numbers that, of planes that we're moving through there, it's hundreds of people. And that's hundreds of people that the Department of State has to work through. So from the other research, there are two views on the, hey, TACC knew what they were doing, they knew where their planes were, and other folks did not um, believe that TACC knew what they were doing and that they knew where their planes were. Uh, so it's really cool how, uh, how we're going to see as history plays out uh, how that comes to light more. It's a fantastic observation, Joey. It's interesting. Normally, we think of the common operating picture as a, as a force multiplier, but uh, uh, not having in this case... Um, you know, it wasn't just uh, reducing our effectiveness, but it actually had a negative effect. Uh, Ditch, anything else you want to add to that before we move on? You know, we call this, uh, uh, we say that it was a non-combatant evacuation operation. And in a sense, it was. Uh, but in another sense, it, it really wasn't. You know, whenever we talk J, uh, doctrine and JP 368 and what the Marines are tasked to do with non-combatant evacuations, um, what we did here was well beyond the scope and scale of what we normally consider 
to be an NEO. Um, when we talk about non-combatants, uh, you know, uh, those that are you know unfamiliar with that word, that word, or what we're really referring to in doctrine, non-combatants are are not refugees. Non-combatants are those that are in country that are part of our mission there, that are either uh, dependents, they are contractors, they are, you know, some some way they're they're affiliated with with what we're doing there. Uh, certainly that in uh, in this situation that did involve uh, a, a number of Afghanis. But then what that doesn't involve is are all these folks that were coming onto the planes that are undocumented, that were not known beforehand. Um, you know, the, the way that the NEO system is designed to work is those non-combatants are known entities ahead of time. And uh, this thing, it, it uh, you, you print you out a ID tag and, and it's supposed to follow you through the entire system as you're evacuated out of uh, the theater. So what these guys had to do on the fly with generating uh, really passenger manifest essentially on paper, that was uh, you know, we knew where all the aircraft were, same as when they were going in. We didn't necessarily know what was on them. That was one of the biggest uh, hurdles for for the operation uh, as we were getting people out was the fact that we couldn't say exactly who or how many people were on each aircraft as it was coming out. You know, things were passed uh, word of mouth. Uh, passenger manifests were written down on paper, and they had to be input into a system uh, afterwards. So there was a lot of on-the-fly type that, you know, in, in in football, we call it an audible, right? And so that, uh, I know we'll get to some of the success stories uh, with with the, uh, the later uh, topic here, but, but that would be one of the biggest ones there. Um, how that ties into the cop is just, you know, we, I would, I would say up front, we applied uh, an NEO system that really wasn't designed to handle the the load uh, and or the nature of uh, passengers that were being loaded onto the aircraft, and so it was an unprecedented situation, and it certainly made uh, getting that information to the people that needed it very difficult. Yeah, and so part of the common operating picture you're talking about is is not just the the exchange of information, the coordination among individuals, but a common understanding of of the template in which we're using. Spike, would you like to add anything to that? He's he's spot on. Um, there is a reason we have doctrine. There is a reason we have processes. Think about it like the rules of the game. If we have the rules of the game and we go out and we just violate all the rules of the game, are we playing the game? You had everybody following their tactical level processes. That's how you made this a success. Your ability to build that common operating picture is based on established command relationships, assigned and attached forces, who is responsible, who is responsible for the command and control of those, who is responsible for the reporting of the status of those. So the way you get that common operating picture is you have command and control nodes throughout the breadth and depth of your operation, and that is how you are informed and build that picture. Yeah, um, Spike, what you said there, I think as far as how command relationships and a, having a common operating picture, it's great to have that information and have it at the uh, the level that it's that it's needed. Uh, as we all understand, though, in, in the various operations we've been involved in, uh, that having 
that uh, that ISR feed or having that that cop in front of you, uh, but being removed from where the operations are are happening. Uh, you know, there is the tendency for for folks to have an illusion of uh, awareness, and there's the tendency to uh, want to lean in and you know uh, turn that thousand mile screwdriver uh, and affect operations whenever uh, the the command and control is actually happening down at a, a lower level. So, uh, you know, having that information is great, but uh, command relationships are important because uh, through those established authorities were able to uh, keep command and control at the level that it, it that it should be you know we get, you don't have higher levels trying to make changes to to things that are that you know that they may not fully uh, have the awareness that they think they think they have um, you know where we've got TACC getting calls from uh, higher uh, authorities uh, asking why is this aircraft doing this? Why is that aircraft doing that? And whenever they were absolutely doing what they needed to, but the appearance was that maybe they weren't. And those types of things uh, cause distraction, they cause confusion, uh, and it takes, uh, you know, it takes away from the efficiency of the operation. So um, cops are great, but we have to have those command relationships ironed out so that uh, that information is used appropriately. As we get towards the end of the podcast here, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. We've talked about some of the friction points uh, with common operating picture, common, uh, command relationships, uh, but uh, holistically, this was a successful mission. 124,000 people evacuated in just 18 days. And a lot of the success comes from the hard work of our, our airmen at the tactical edge and their, their brothers, and, brothers uh, and sisters in arms. And so, Joe, I'd like to throw it over to you to kind of highlight uh, what was happening there at the Tactical Edge that, that, that didn't make this mission successful? Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, this is one of the things I'm super passionate about. Uh, it brings tears to my eyes, too, uh, as I've spent a lot of time writing about it and capturing their stories. Um, one, of the, one of the most common responses I've heard from members involved in the Kabul airlift was that I was just doing my job. I was just doing my job. I just showed up to Charleston to launch the 82nd and work 24 hour days and do it for a week on end. You know, they're working 12 hour shifts, but they were just grinding and they stay as late as they could. Uh, to the people on the ground at IUD who were cleaning human feces off of planes and trying to take care of these individuals, these Afghan refugees as best they can in this heat and doing it day in, day out and just making it happen to try to make people's lives better and continue the operation. So at, at high risk to their own safety, uh, the contingent response forces and the air mobility personnel, they, they push the limits of the aircraft. They push the limits of their own physical stamina. And their emotional strength was just awe-inspiring. Uh, they bit standard procedures. They solved problems at lowest ranks. And they got more aircraft in the air to get more people out of Afghanistan. Their goal was to save lives. And that's a total force aspect. We had people from that were flying Delta flights at the end of July, and they went and volunteered with their reserve units to get out into the system, to get out into Afghanistan to save lives uh, as they're in their double duty. Um, those organizations, Deltas, the airlines, they did a tremendous job of, of allowing those reservists to jump into the fight. So that's something to be commendable as well. But 
people wanted to help. They wanted to be in it and they put up with a lot of personal things as well as as organizational and structural things, those limitations that we've discussed already. Um, and they got the job done. But at the end of the day, I got to put together the Distinguished Flying Cross Ceremony for Charleston where we recognized 51 individuals. Almost every one of them didn't want to do it. They're like, I was just doing my job. And they, they take great pride in just doing their job and being professionals. But it was fantastic. It was amazing. I am so proud to know these women and men uh, and to continue to serve with them. And I'm confident that they'll continue to rise to the challenge. Uh, and that's what gives me a lot of faith as we as we talk doctrine, as we talk at higher level, uh, no matter where we go into in the next in the next future, as the next months and years lead up, um, these people, these men and women are are in our force, and they're they're continuing the legacy that that our retired forces and the people before us uh, has set before has set. Uh, so that's really comforting, knowing that when we go to the next thing, whatever it is, we'll be ready. And if we're not, we got people that are going to solve problems and figure it out, uh, and that's really comforting. Joy, thank you. Uh, makes me very proud to wear the uniform. Uh, Ditch, I, I'd like to ask you, is, since you've been very involved in the, uh, the development of this Mission Command Doctrine Note, um, as you look at this case study uh, and you're thinking about Mission Command, wh- what is it kind of teaching you in terms of how we can really explain this concept? So, yeah, as far as, uh, you know, how, how this relates to Mission Command as a, a flyer, as, as someone out there doing the missions, I've always been told, you know, hey, don't don't tell me how to do it. Tell me what to do, and I'll figure out how. Right? Um, that's the attitude that that most uh, Air Force folks uh, involved in operations takes to to doing their job. Um, we're, you know, I'm the expert in my system or in my aircraft or in my mission. You know, I know how to get things done. Just tell me what you need. And uh, that that mentality is exactly what what we're trying to get after with with mission command with uh, focusing on empowering subordinate decision making to empower subordinates to be able to act uh, based on commander's intent to to you know not always have the mindset of you know mother may i like no i know what needs to be done and i know what needs to happen i can trust the uh, the folks uh, around me the folks uh, above me folks under me to to do what they're supposed to do and and to act with that uh, on that initiative as well so I think this uh, uh, this operation uh, demonstrates uh, the ability to to trust airmen to be able to do the job and get it done right, uh, even whenever uh, with, with uh, something like this where it was just completely unprecedented. Right? Nobody. I mean, we had uh, plans drawn up, but they they certainly didn't uh, account for uh, the scenario unfolding the way it did. Right? But uh, so I think that's a huge success story and, and something that shows that, uh, you know, hopefully things uh, are, are are planned better and we, uh, you know, follow doctrine where where we should. Uh, but we can trust that our airmen uh, will be able to adapt and overcome uh, because uh, they're trained to do so and they have, they're empowered by their leaders to uh, uh, to make the decisions when and where they need to. Excellent. Spike, thoughts? Let me just add right out of the report verbatim. So Operation uh, Allies Refuge was uh, a success largely due to the heroic efforts of the assign of the airmen assigned to it. 
Uh, and so, yeah, back to from the air crew uh, to the contingency response team, response team, uh, maintenance, uh, service, security, logistics, uh, everybody at every location, uh, all the different uh, C2 nodes, 603rd, 609th, 618th, nonstop, all true, 24 hours a day, nonstop, everybody uh, all in. I think the number that we had was uh, Transcom uh, Public Affairs uh, announced uh, 124,000 civilians. Uh, so probably plus or minus one that we might get called on by the joint staff. But 17 days, 124,000 people. Tremendous, tremendous effort. And what I would tell people, what I what I tell people about uh, the effort in Desert Storm, what I tell people about the effort in uh, Iraqi freedom, what I will always tell people about this effort. There is one Air Force in the world that can do this, one. And the American public should be proud of that. It's this Air Force. So everything Joey says is true. With all the warts and bumps, it's the best people the nation has to offer, given their best. Now, it's a good example of that, perhaps one of the best examples you will find of that. So I think I think people should understand that. Thanks, Mike. That's uh, that's very powerful and something we certainly don't want to to lose. It's easy to get lost into the uh, what things we could have done better and forget exactly the capability of the Air Force. So in conclusion here, I'd kind of like to go around. Um, each one of you have looked at this case study uh, in depth and give you an opportunity to offer a key takeaway uh, to our listeners. And so, Joe, I'll go to you first. Yeah, thank you, Nick. I mean, the Kabul, from the Berlin airlift and the, the hump, the hump that we flew, uh, that Bill Tunner flew over the Himalayas, those taught us a lot, and history has taught us a lot about airlift and the indirect use of air power. It doesn't map one-to-one on contested airlift or logistics under attack. So the Kabul airlift, the case study highlights some of those challenges that we talked about through command and control, procurement, training. Uh, but I personally believe the, the Afghanistan's geographic location, the geopolitical climate that it happened in, and the rapid timeline to complete the full evacuation of Afghanistan, it makes it hard to extrapolate overarching lessons observed from the Kabul airlift that would apply in future conflicts in the Indo-Pacific or European command areas. We can't forget the importance of logistics uh, throughout operations, throughout wars, throughout what the DOD does. It's important to all, all, thing, all things associated with national defense. We can't let tactical operations distract us from the importance of sound doctrine and comprehensive strategic planning either. So that's some of the biggest items that, that we've pulled out, that I've pulled out and been able to, to gain uh, from research and, and the history, analysis of history on this. We're going to make it happen. Therefore, we must not forget the importance of logistics to all aspects of national defense. We can't let tactical operations distract us from the importance of sound doctrine and comprehensive strategic planning. The Kabul airlift provides a lot of great examples, uh, great stories of airmen, um, but I'm not sure it's the best example to pull through uh, to other operations and planning uh, in the Pacific or with near-peer or contested environments. Uh, so as we, as we all take away and walk away from this, uh, my goal is that these stories don't get lost over time, uh, that the people are recognized and the efforts and the Herculean efforts they've done are recognized. Um, but we got to continue to look for forward and further 
but in the Kabul airlift and the operation, the uncontested environment that we were in, to make sure that uh, we have success in whatever we're called to next, that we have success, whatever the situation that we're in. So with that, um, Nick, I'd like to say thank you for the opportunity. Uh, for Spike and Ditch, thank you for the opportunity as well. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal chance to talk about the Kabul airlift and, and what we're doing uh, looking forward. Joey, thanks for being here and uh, look forward to uh, uh, reading your book when it comes out. I think you said uh, August of the following year. Is that correct? We're looking at August of this year. Uh, so there's some th things in the work and, uh, and finishing up, tying some loose ribbons, but covering the stories of everyone uh, that was involved and some of the history involved as well. All right. Thank you. Uh, Ditch, key takeaway for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, there's there's clearly a, a lot of takeaways, uh, and you could go any direction you, you want with this. Uh, you know, the the lessons learned uh, that we we put together, you know, that was really focused uh, up at the the highest levels of of leadership. But uh, understanding our audience here is, uh, you know, mostly the the uh, CGOs and FGOs out, uh, and airmen out there that are at the the pointy end of these missions. The big takeaway that I've got that I would stress to, to anyone out there that when you look at something like this, uh, when you look at how it unfolded and, and you see how airmen performed, they could not have performed the way they did if they weren't ready. Readiness is key. And, and it, uh, readiness isn't your, your free deployment training, your CBTs and all that stuff. You know, readiness comes in how you approach your job every single day. You know, readiness is, I don't need to be in my dash one studying the, the procedures just right before a check ride. I need to be an expert in my system, an expert in my, in my NWS or in my job or whatever it is, because this scenario shows us that we, we can't always predict when things are going to uh, pop off, when we're going to be needed to perform uh, where, you know, this situation very politically charged. Uh, a lot on the line, and uh, the success depended on the collective uh, inputs of, of everyone involved. And you know, a, a minor failure somewhere uh, could have had you know extremely major consequences. So uh, kudos to those involved that were ready, and to to those out there that that weren't involved. The takeaway is is be ready. Uh, when, when called, uh, you need to be on your game. Excellent. Appreciate that ditch. Spike, uh, last thoughts? Yeah, last thoughts on, on the human side. There is nothing quite as important as the individuals knowing their specialty, how to do their job. This is an excellent example of that down to the lowest level. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm addressing uh, captains, majors, I would, I would say be the best that you can in your specialty. Uh, and when you rise in rank uh, and move on to these higher headquarters, remember that everybody down there below you, they're just like you were, right? They're all extremely qualified in their specialty. And don't tell them how to do their job. Give them the resources they need to do their job. So this is an excellent display of expertise and perhaps more importantly, an expertise in what makes you an officer, and that's character. That's that willingness to do what has to be done and do it because it's the right thing to do.
and let me end with this. This is one of the things that I thought when we went out and looked at, at, at this. There have been articles written, there have uh, uh, been a lot of people that will, will go around telling folks that air power is targeting and targeting is air power. And that's just not exactly right, right? Air power is infinitely more complex than targeting. Air power is about intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, maintenance, medical, medical evacuation, search and rescue, power projection, and mobility. Nobody has the airlift. Nobody has the tankers. We didn't even talk about the tanker support required to make this happen. Nobody has that capability. If you are part of the United States Air Force, if you're part of the United States military, you need to understand what the Air Force writ large can bring. Um, obviously know your specialty, be an expert, and listen to folks that are experts in their capability, because it's one team trying to get to the same goal. This is an excellent example of that. And I, I think that's how it will be remembered. Yeah, that's all I have. Thanks for allowing me to share. Absolutely, Spike. Thanks for being here. And uh, just as the uh, uh, director of lessons learned there, if our listeners want to be able to go read some of these after action reports, uh, how, how do they do that? If you have the ability, uh, you can get to our SharePoint site. Um, if you uh, have a joint lessons learned information system account, uh, you can get to everything that we've done. And the joint information lesson learned site uh, is www.j llis.mil, commonly referred to as GILIS, uh, for CAC holders. You can uh, access it there and request an account, uh, and it'll provide you access to the unclassified versions uh, of these uh, reports. I'd like to thank our panel for being here today. This has been a, a wonderful exploration of the Kabul airlift. Hopefully our, our listeners are able to take quite a bit from this. Thanks, everybody, and that'll do it for today. That's going to do it for our inaugural episode of our new Case Studies and Doctrine podcast series. The show is mixed by the team at AU Public Affairs. Special thanks to our panel members, the LeMay Center and Air University. As a reminder, the views expressed in this episode are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the LeMay Center, Lessons Learned Director at Air University or the United States Air Force. I'm Nicholas Underwood, and we'll see you next time.